We are starting a new series. If you look on the screen over there, you can see in the background a big wall. And we are entering into a, a six to seven week series um, out of the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at this journey of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and how that has effect and impact on our lives present day. So we're excited about that. We're also doing this series along with Community of Faith Christian Fellowship. And on June 1st, the pastor at Community of Faith, Jeff Bianchi, will be here to preach. And I'm going to go to Community of Faith and preach there as well. So we'll have a little pulpit swap. So if you're wondering, what's that pastor like over at Community of Faith? Well, come June 1st and, um, and enjoy uh, a message shared by Jeff Bianchi. You'll, you'll be blessed. <clears throat> you know, uh, many years ago now, I, I, um, maybe somebody in here can tell me that the exact year, I forget, when the tsunami hit Sri Lanka. Was that in 2002 or three? It's been a while now. Um, six? Okay, thank you. Anybody got seven? Is it eight? Um, uh, many years ago, it's, been, it's, it's long enough now that I, I'm ha- I sometimes have a hard time remembering the details, but... Um, we immediately, as a movement, sent um, uh, teams of people to not only Sri Lanka, but if you remember, also Indonesia was, uh, was hit hard. And so we sent three different teams, two to, two to Sri Lanka and one to Indonesia, days after the tsunami um, had devastated the coastline of both of those countries. With the intent to, we sent nurses and doctors primarily um, uh, counselors and children's workers um, to those areas to be kind of the first response teams to an area that was just completely devastated by the tsunami. Um, I wasn't actually able to be in that first wave, but a couple of weeks later I was able to come after the initial teams had left and still the country in complete destruction. And um, it was incredibly overwhelming for me. Uh, it was very emotional because when you got off the plane and you actually got on, uh, I got into a, a taxi or a form of a taxi in Sri Lanka and went up the coastline, it was unbelievable, the destruction. Uh, whole, uh, the whole seawall of that country um, and the, the villages that lined the country, depending on what part of the, the coastline you were at, there were uh, just houses completely destroyed and removed. There were ocean liners that were on the beach and on the shore. Uh, the Just massive amounts of trees destroyed. The amount of destruction from the coastline in was uh, 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 a mile at certain places of the destruction just going into the, co- the coast of the, of the country. Uh, it was absolutely in disrepair. There was, there was just nothing that, you know, occasionally you would see some building or some, some st- structure that survived miraculously. But for the most part, just beyond your imagination, destruction. We ended up serving three different communities as a, as a movement during that time. But we ended up st- um, staying put in one of those three towns that we served. There was relationship that was built with the local fishermen in the local village and through our ministry, both of 
praying for the sick, healing the sick through modern medicine, bandaging wounds, etc. Our children's workers playing with the children and ministering to the families who many of them had lost a son, a daughter, a mother, a brother, a father, husband, wife, family members. All of, there was not one family in that community that was not affected by loss and death. And apart from that, their whole industry was destroyed. It was destroyed for a couple of reasons, because their boats and the things that they used were off, had been taken out into the ocean or were crashed against trees. But now there was an incredible fear of the ocean. They, wouldn't, they didn't want to have any part with this monster that had destroyed um, their lives. There was one community that allowed us to stay put, to, to, to not just come in and go out, but they, they asked, would you remain and help us rebuild? And so we were able to, through the donations of thousands upon thousands of people throughout the country, a, a massive fundraising campaign was established here in the States to raise money to buy a huge piece of land that was on higher ground away from the ocean and begin to rebuild home, or build new homes and create a new community for these people. I use this illustration as a, as a jumping off point for this study in Nehemiah because um, what we see in Nehemiah is a similar story and yet it has even more profound implications because the walls that were destroyed in the city that was in ruins was Jerusalem. But in Sri Lanka, in this, in this small town, what had once been a thriving, protected, prospering, peaceful location after a, a ma- massive major event had become a place of destruction. What had once been a place of honor and esteem for these fishermen was now a place of dishonor. What would once felt like a place of security and peace now felt unstable and they felt fearful um, in, their, in their everyday lives. And that's what happens when the walls of our city, the walls of our existence come crumbling down. And we'll see that in Nehemiah. When I first moved to Boston, um, one of the journeys, and this, was, this has been now 16 years ago. We moved here um, in 98. Um, one of the things that I did is I drove through the city and I went to different churches. I visited ch- churches that were open um, and I, I worshiped with different congregations. I visited churches that were closed. And I uh, peered in the window and looked around the property to see what was going on. I was just interested in what had happened with the church. I, I, I was, was so blessed by so many life-giving and wonderful tr- churches. As a matter of fact, we lived on the North Shore and we would drive down um, on the weekends to go to different churches. And we fell in love with a church in Dorchester called Jubilee. And uh, we ended up making that kind of our every other week church that we would go to because we were so encouraged and built up by Pastor Thompson. For some of you who came to World Mandate, you got to hear him share with us on Saturday morning. But I was so encouraged with this church that was alive and, and reaching and transforming the community that it was involved in. I got to visit Park Street, which is another thriving church and was so encouraged with this church that has been established, you know, um, 150, maybe 200 years ago, but is still a beacon of light and witness to the downtown community of Boston and literally to our region and to our nation. 
um, so encouraged by the churches that were thriving, but so discouraged by the number of churches that were either shuttered or that were existing, but that were no longer preaching the good news of Jesus. We're no longer declaring the very truths and living the life that their founders. I thought about the people when I look at these beautiful steepled buildings that were no longer either open or no longer preaching the gospel. And I thought about those dear saints that sacrificed their dollars and their, their energy and their backs to build this beautiful edifice. But not just the building, the building a symbol of what was probably once a thriving community of families and, and children and, and um, moms and dads and grandfathers and grandma, grandmothers who loved Jesus who proclaimed the good news that we just celebrated at communion, who thought that for years and years and decades and generations and centuries, this church would continue to be a beacon like Park Street, like Jubilee of the life and the proclamation of Jesus. But no longer was it happening. I was looking at real estate the other day online and came across the picture of this beautiful living room, this majestic windowed living room, and I realized that I was looking at a living room that had been converted from an old church building. I realized that I was looking at the stained glass and arch of a beautiful window that had been, had been crafted into a new luxurious living room. And my heart broke, not because of the building, but because of the death of a church. The dampening and the darkening of a light that had once burned so bright in that location, I assume. I remember sitting with a man in his 40s, good-looking man, prosperous, doing well in his job, sitting before me, weeping. Why was he weeping? A believer in Jesus, a Christian man. Why was he weeping? Because his whole life had fallen apart. The choices that he had made, he had begun to make years before of dabbling in pornography, of uh, giving himself a little bit too much to alcohol and the, the excesses of alcohol, introducing himself to a lifestyle that uh, seemed innocent or seemed not that bad because it was just him. It was just him looking at this, this, this picture on a screen. It was just him uh, drinking an extra glass of wine before he went to bed. But that lifestyle, that, that seeking of something to fill the void or to, to, to stir the imagination or to touch the need that he thought he had in his life became more and more increased and more and more a part of his life. And it expanded in its influence and expanded in his hunger. And he found himself in the midst of a broken marriage. His marriage over. His life in ruins and him waking up to the reality that the walls that once stood strong in his life, the place 
of great honor to the Lord, a family devoted to Jesus, a man of the church, a man of love and care, of concern for others, in that secret, private corner of his life, that, that place began to grow and it began to crumble the walls in his life. The place of protection became a place of invasion. Not just for his life, but for his family's life. And not just for his family's life, but for the, for the people in his life that saw him as the one source of Jesus and inspiration for them. And as they watched his life fall apart, their own lives began to wonder and doubt whether this God that he lived for was truly a God at all. His walls crumbled. His family's life crumbled. His witness crumbled. The honor of God through his life tarnished because the walls came down. So when we enter into this study of Nehemiah, and I start here because this is where the story starts. Please forgive me if you wish that this would have come at week three or week four. It comes now because we've got to decide why in the world are these walls down in Jerusalem. When we study the book of Nehemiah, we're not just studying about a people a long time ago. But we're asking the question today, next week, the week after, for the next few weeks. God, what are the broken walls in my life? What are the broken walls in our church, in our churches, in our city, in our nation? What are those walls that have come down? And God, would you please start to rebuild these walls? I've been to cities throughout Europe and have had the privilege of standing on castle heights I've been to cities who actually had old walls. And walls are significant in cities. They are walls for protection. They are walls for witness. When a city is fully walled and fully operational, it declares to the whole area around it, we're here. Add to that Jerusalem and its walls and its city, it not only promoted or described that to the people. It also promoted when its walls were up that it was impenetrable, that it was protected, but it was also to the people of Israel, the city of God. It was where their temple was. It was where the presence of God resided. It spoke of the honor of who God was himself. It spoke of a people that were submitted and yielded to the living God. Walls provide high vantage points to see the approaching enemy. Walls prevent anyone from coming in and out. You have to pass through a gate. Walls are positions of the offense to hurl down stones or weaponry or arrows upon the advancing enemy. Walls are walls of a city to be seen, to declare the existence of a great city. We want walls in our life, don't we? Of this nature. Now, for note, when we talk about walls, rebuilding walls throughout this sermon series, we're not talking about the walls, the concept of dividing walls. We're not talking about the concept of 
of uh, that wall of division. When we pray, God, break down dividing walls. We w- we're not going to talk about that kind of wall other than to say, as we go through Nehemiah, we'll see a great theme of them rebuilding the wall is based on unity. And it's based on working together. But we're talking about walls of honor, walls of protection, walls of witness. So what's the history? What's the, what's the background of, uh, of Jerusalem? And, and what's the background of Nehemiah as we, as we go into it? Let's look real quickly at the history of, of this city. So as you know, or you might not know, prior to Jerusalem being destroyed... Um, the northern kingdom, there's 12 tribes of Israel. And so the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north were in, 17, uh, in 722 were captured and overtaken by the Assyrian, Assyrian army. So the, the, the prevailing superpower of the day, the Assyrians, swooped in and conquered the 10 northern nations. And then in 587, the two remaining tribes... Um, otherwise noted as Judah, where Jerusalem was situated. Um, They were conquered by the Babylonians who had actually overtaken um, the Assyrians as the world power in that day. So some 150 years later or such, there was a new empire, the Babylonians, and the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, destroyed it, and removed all of the sacred articles of the temple out of the temple and took them back to Babylon. Okay, listen to D.A. Carson, a theologian, as he described that moment. He says, it's difficult to exaggerate the radical disruption which the Babylonian conquest brought about. Many of the people, and in particular the leaders and ruling classes, were taken into exile into Babylon. The temple, which had stood for so long as a focal point for the religion and unity of the people, was raised to the ground and its valuables removed to the temple of the victorious Babylonians. The king too was removed, as his predecessor had been, so that the monarchy in which such high hopes had been vested since the time of King David simply, simply ceased to exist. The country itself seemed to have become nothing more than a somewhat remote province of the Babylonian Empire. This once mighty city, this once mighty nation under King David and the kings to come, no longer had a temple. All of its holy artifacts were sacrilegiously removed from the temple and taken to Babylon. The temple and the town were destroyed. The king was taken off. All the leaders and the rulers were taken off. All the important people and and other groups of people were captured and exiled to Babylon. And now Israel was a footnote in the history books. It was a off Way off, little province ruled by the Babylonians. Can you imagine? 538 um, is where the book of Ezra begins, which is prior to Nehemiah in, our, in, in the Bible. And they go together, Ezra and Nehemiah t- tell the story. Um, in 538... Um, The Persians overtook the Babylonians. And so now the Persians are the ruling people. And they had a different way that they ruled. They they ruled ruthlessly. They were definitely people who ruled with power and then were, were in charge. But they practiced a policy of seeking to win the loyalty of those subjects that they ruled. And one way they did it is that they granted 
a degree of local autonomy to the people that they were ruling. This is important because the kings of Persia play an important role in the people returning back to Jerusalem and Jerusalem being restored. And it was at the time of, of their kings that Zerubbabel and Ezra entered back into Jerusalem and began to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. That's significant. The temple was rebuilt, and there was a lot of opposition at that time, and we'll see a lot of opposition as Nehemiah comes on the scene as as he attempts to rebuild the walls again. But Ezra moved in in, in, in Zerubbabel, and they rebuilt the city, and they rebuilt the walls. And in 457 B.C., there was a revival under Ezra. So there was a turning back to God. The city was rebuilt, and then they turned their whole lives over to God. They repented, and they turned back to God in 457. Twelve years later after that revival, they were back in rebellion again. Does that surprise you? Oh, Lord, as I was praying this morning, I said, Lord, we are fickle people. We so easily forget the works of God in our own lives and the lives of our people. And we turn to our own wicked ways. They were back in full rebellion again. And the walls were burned down and there was destruction again by invading, invading armies in the area. And it was at this news, and that's where Nehemiah comes into the picture. It was at this news in 444 B.C. that Nehemiah hears about what has happened in Jerusalem. So let's read the very first verses of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hagaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, <clears throat> Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's getting an update about what's going on in Jerusalem. And they said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. We could say again. And its gates have been burned with fire. So here Nehemiah is, we'll learn a little bit later, he is the cupbearer to the king, but he is a a follower of Jerusalem. Jehovah God, he is a, he is a believer, he is a, he is, he's one who honors God with his heart and his life, he's a man of prayer, we'll see in a minute, and he hears news that what once was restored, just recently restored, and the revival that ensued um, uh, under the leadership of Ezra has now ceased again, and the walls have been burned down, and we ask the question, and he asked the question, what has happened? What has happened? We'll, we'll look at how he did that in a second, but I want to answer that problem first. Verse 7 through 8, what was the problem? 7 and 8 tell us in his prayer, he says this, We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. So what what had happened? Why had the children, been, children of Israel been exiled to Babylon in the first place? Why was Jerusalem sacked? Why was it burned? Why was it being ravaged again? Why were the walls... What is happening to the children of Israel? 
Well, in Ezra 5.12, we get a little picture. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. They had been rebellious towards God. But let's look at it a little bit more specifically in 2 Kings chapter 17. Let's look at what it looked like for them to rebel against God. We're going to read this whole passage very quickly. Verse 7. All of this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, followed the practices of the nations of the Lord, that the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places, meaning not places to worship, the one true God in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and over every, under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants and prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsake all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols, cast in the shape of calves in an Asherah pole. They bow down to all the starry host. They worship Baal. Verse 17. They sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to the evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices of Israel, that it, the practices Israel had introduced, the northern kingdom, their brothers to the north. And therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel, all twelve tribes. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. I'm so broken when I read this, when I think about where sin leads us. When we decide that we are not um, going to honor or obey or self-select how we want to obey God. Oh, I'll obey you in these ways, but I'm not going to obey you in these ways. I'll be half-hearted in my obedience here, but I won't be wholehearted here. When When we give our are ways to ways that are not God. We see a picture of human nature here that the end result is that it becomes so self-serving and selfish that we could even burn our kids in the fire. We would even be willing to sacrifice our own children on the altar for our own benefit. Oh, that, gosh, 
move on, Sean. That's way back. We don't do that anymore. I haven't seen an altar to altar for kids ever. How often do we, in our own pursuits, in our own world, sacrifice our children's lives for the sake of our own gain or pleasure? I'll pause and let God speak to you there. How often in our own pursuit of our own fame, our own possessions, and our own ladder of success, sacrifice our family and our children and our lives at the altar. Ah, well, that's, that's, that's the heathen world. That's the world out there beyond the church, is it? How often as a church do we build up other idols? Oh, Sean, I just don't have time to really be involved in church or be involved in the family of God because I've got too many other things I'm working on right now. I've got a degree to finish. I've got a project I've got to close. I've even got really good things I'm doing. I'm running 500 directions with my family all over the place. If church in the life of God fits in, great. But if not, I've got other things to do right now. Sometimes those things are very right and noble. But have we ever stopped to look back and go, what is the pattern of my life? Search my heart, O God. See if there be anything wicked, any way wicked in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. The psalmist said, search me, God. As we go back to the passage of Scripture with Nehemiah, that's exactly what he did when he heard the news. When he heard the news, it says in verse 4, he sat down and he wept. He wept for some days. It says, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Listen, the only person that God wants to convict this morning as I preach and as I think about my own life is me. And he wants to convict you as well. It is not my job to convict you in the sense of say to you exactly what you should be aware of God. God will speak to you what he's saying. I can bring up situations and issues, but you need to listen to God. But when God reveals to us that there is a wall down, and it might be your wall, it's not everybody's wall. There are some really high walls in here. Praise God. There are some very devoted People that are living for Jesus as much as they know how are experiencing the grace of God and receiving from God His mercy and are surrendering their lives as they understand best to serve Jesus. I see high walls in this room. So don't walk in condemnation if it's not you. But for some of us in the room, God might be speaking. And maybe for many of us in the room, it might be that our walls are really high, but there might be a fissure, a crack. There might be a low wall that God wants to address, and we'll talk about that in a second. Hold on with me, because He's not wanting to condemn you. Amen? 
There is hope, but we can't get to the place of where his hope is unless we're willing to take an account, can we? Oh, no, I'm all into grace, Sean. I'm all into his love and forgiveness. Preach one of those messages. I like those. I do, too. I preach them. I preach them myself every day. Every day is a day of grace. Amazing grace. I love it. But if I'm not willing to take a look at my Father in heaven who loves me more than anybody loves me in the world, who says, Sean, I want you to know you have got a breach in your wall. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't tell me about my breaches, God. I want to know about the strength in my life. I want you to encourage me. I want you to build me up. Well, I want to build you up, Sean. I want to build up that breach in your wall. But you've got to acknowledge it and own it before I can do something with it. Search me, O oh God. Search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. When Nehemiah heard that the walls were down, he wept. Why did he weep? Why did he weep? This wasn't his sin. So for those of you who had high walls in the room, this was at least, he wasn't living in Jerusalem. We'll see his prayer. He owns it as his own. But why did he weep? He wept because God was dishonored. He wept because he knew. He knew what they had gone through the first time with the surrounding people of Jerusalem. The mocking and the accusation and the the ridicule of their broken estate. He knew that with this it meant that God would not be honored in the way that he is called to be honored. I also believe he wept because he loved his people. And he was sad that his people had forgotten the ways of God. How often are you broken over your sin? Not because you got caught. Paul talks about that. Paul says that there's two different kinds of sorrow in 1 Corinthians 7. There's a sorrow, there's a sorrow that's kind of like, gosh, darn, I got caught sorrow. Okay, you got me, I'm wrong. He calls that a worldly sorrow. Pretty much he says that's not a real sorrow at all. But the sorrow that is real is a sorrow that's accompanied with repentance. It's accompanied with a brokenness. Yeah, I am caught wow, I am aware just how much it dishonors you and how much it destroys my life and others' lives. That's a godly sorrow. That's the sorrow that Nehemiah had when he saw the walls or heard about the walls being broken down. It's like, oh my gosh, God, we've done it again. Maybe your walls are high right now, but maybe God is pricking your heart for the walls that are down around you. Can I show you what kind of heart Nehemiah had when he realized that the walls around him were down? Remember, he's not living there. What did he do? He fasted. He prayed. He mourned. He wept. And then he did the only thing he knew he could do. 
he started off by confessing his sin. Don't you wish that's how the church looked at your broken down walls? Isn't that what you would like from the people in this congregation if they found that you had a breach in your wall? That when they saw through a story or through an interaction or through maybe a a piece of gossip, they heard about your wall being broken down and their response was to weep not out of judgment, but out of brokenness. Lord, my brother's wall's down. My sister's wall is down. It grieves me, God. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? That's the posture of fasting and prayer. What can I do? Lord, what can you do? What? Please help. I can't do anything, but God, you can. Or at least you're the beginning of what to do, Lord. I will obey whatever you say, but God, reveal. And help. Not from a place of judgment. How often do our walls get knocked down and what we feel from one another is self-righteous judgment. I can't believe your wall's down. How dare the walls of Jerusalem be down? I'm in exile. I'm in Babylon. I'm serving a foreign king. We've already seen revival and the walls are down? Lord, his prayer, his prayer, his prayer was if I can find it. His prayer was in here. And he said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive. In your eyes open to hear the prayer, your servant, Nehemiah. Not, can't wait for them to get humble and pray for their own sins. Lord, may you hear the cry of this servant for my brothers and sisters' sake, whose wall is down, who as a result, you are not receiving honor. God, I want you to be honored. I want my brothers and sisters to be restored. I want this city to be rebuilt. I want the walls built back up again, Lord. Your servant, will you please hear the prayer and cry of your servant who is praying before you day and night for the people, for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Lord, I'm calling out for all of us, but let it start with me. Let me tell you what my sins are. Let me tell you how I need your forgiveness, and I need your grace, and I need your help. That cry of petition, that cry of of confession, excuse me, and repentance. It's our sin, not someone else's. Remember when we were in Romans. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you condemn yourself. It goes on in verse 4. Don't you know that it's his kindness, his forbearance, it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. And this is why Jesus came. Amen? Jesus came to rebuild our walls. The walls that had crumbled down because of our sin and our shame. 
the walls that have fallen apart by our own doing, Jesus came to rebuild. He came to do what we could not do on our own. He came to restore what we could not restore. He came to bring those of us who were banished from God back to God himself. He's the God, not of the exile, but the returning from exile to his glory. 